Well, Heavenly Father, it is certainly with the best of intentions that we have gathered and how easy it is for us in the decency of the moment to let words flow across our lips and yet how difficult sometimes for our feet to follow later on when we're all alone. Lord, that our lives would indeed flow in ceaseless praise as sacrifices of obedience to you, that we would indeed be models of surrender before you, that we would be the salt and the light, the righteous, holy church that you've called us to be. Father, scrub us with your word today now. Challenge us. Help us to realize how vitally important these historical accounts are of how you deal with people and how you continue to deal with people. Father, may we with all sincerity and all care heed the prompting of your Holy Spirit in our hearts today. With greatest respect, may we open our Bibles now, Lord, with a determination renewed and an attitude keen to walk in obedience. It's in Jesus' name we pray. With thanksgiving today, Father. Amen. Well, often when I speak to teenagers, I use a story, an incident that occurred in my life when I was about a junior or senior in high school and away at band camp. I've probably only used this story here maybe 17 times, but um, it, it fits the moment well. And I have this moment embedded in my memory not realizing at the time how significant it was. But we were away at band camp. It was summertime, and we were preparing for the upcoming marching band season. And we had a little bit of free time scheduled into the afternoon. And as I came back to my cabin, where our senior high guys were staying, I entered the cabin, and the boys were gathered around in kind of a circle on the lower bunks. And they were, uh, what you might say, um, enjoying and viewing some inappropriate pictures. And I came in and I said, guys, get, get that out of here. Knock it off. Not wanting to be tempted myself and then recognizing that I was well known as the pastor's son from the Bible church and had witnessed to a number of my friends and did not want to in any way to be a stumbling block for the name of Jesus Christ in that moment. I remember as they felt a little bit awkward, um, not knowing whether to give in to my request or whether to just continue their viewing process there and their banter and talk. A kid named Dennis Watson, I knew him pretty well because he rode my bus in the mornings and afternoons on the regular school schedule, piped up and he said, do you know what, Marceau? This whole world would go to hell if it weren't for people like you. You know, I don't know if Dennis really understood what he was saying, and I'm sure I didn't recognize the light that I was being at that time. I just uh, was worried about the situation and knew I didn't want to falter in the midst of it as a 17, 16, 17-year-old kid. But as I invite you, and as we turn to Genesis chapter 18, it's interesting to me that what Dennis Watson said in one sentence 
is what God is going to teach Abraham in this moment, in the last half of chapter 18. It matters the kind of life you live. We find ourselves in the middle of a most interesting situation. You'll recall as we've been going through Genesis that we've just wrapped up the first half of chapter 18. Sarah has been seated seated in her tent right behind the flap. She's heard this exchange from the Lord and the two angelic men who have come to visit. And uh, she has heard her name spoken. Once again, the covenant promise has been reaffirmed. You are Abraham. You are Sarah going to have a baby in your old age. It is the child of promise. Do not doubt me. With God, is, all things are possible. Is anything too hard for God? What a great question. And Sarah snickers, right? Inside her heart at least. And remember, she, when confronted by the Lord, says, I didn't laugh, and she literally lies to the Lord there. The story moves on, and we find out that these three guests with whom Abraham has shown his modeled hospitality and given this great feast are there for a specific reason, even more than just to reaffirm this covenant promise that has been reaffirmed multiple times now in the last several chapters But now we're coming into some circumstances that are very grave, very serious. I want to read the text and I want you to notice here the importance of how we live, the importance of being light in our society. This morning we're going to focus on the reality of this whole dynamic of the preserving agent that righteous people are to a society. We're going to emphasize the reality of the fact that the greatest thing we can do to preserve our community, the greatest thing we can do to withhold the judgment and the wrath of a holy God on a godless, wretched people, is that within that group there be found righteous people. Going to have an interesting exchange between Abraham and God. Let's read about it. It's Genesis chapter 18. Begin with verse 16 is our text today. We'll go through the end of the chapter and then next week enter that well-known passage, Genesis chapter 19, where God is going to pour out his wrath on uh, the cities in the valley there, Sodom, Gomorrah, along with another city. And uh, it's interesting to see what happens, why it happens And then for us to recognize the reality that God has not changed and that God still is a righteous and a just God and that it is still one of the great spiritual laws of the universe that the wages of sin is always death. God cannot deny his own laws. But God does not arbitrarily rub out people off the face of the earth. He is a loving and a just God who shows mercy Genesis chapter 18, begin with verse 16. Follow along with me, please. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. I would take it, by the way, that it's evening now. I would take it that they have enjoyed this big feast, and that the men are now going to move on for the purpose from which they've come. Two of the men, I take them to be angels in the form of men, are going to move on down into the valley. The Lord is going to stay and have this interesting conversation with Abraham. Perhaps the sun is setting. They are in a, at a higher point geographically. They're looking down into the valley and they either see the lights of these valley cities coming on for the evening or they see they can see the silhouette or the, of the community as the dust settles on another day. And there it is. And as they look down, here's what happens. 
Then the Lord said, verse 17, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. And then the Lord said, verse 20, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if they have done if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. And then Abraham approached him and he said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than fifty? Will you destroy the whole city because of five people? If I find forty-five there, the Lord says, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, what if only forty are found there? He said, for the sake of forty I will not do it. Then he said, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? And he answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty can be found there? And he said, for the sake of twenty I will not destroy it. And then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? And he answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left. And Abraham returned home. What an interesting dialogue. Six times Abraham looks at the Lord. And he acknowledges in all humility... I don't even deserve to talk to you. I'm dust and ashes. But what if? Six but what ifs. I wonder what Abraham was thinking when he walked away that evening, pondering that conversation. And I wonder what he thought many years later throughout his lifetime. I think one of the burning questions that he took to his grave was, why did I stop at 10? To break down the passage that we can get a handle on it and kind of examine it, and then we'll draw some application for today from it as well. Four observations here, but the first thing we have in our passage back at 18, 16, 17, and 18 is we have God's apparent intention. You might even say God's obvious intention. As Abraham and the Lord stand up and begin this conversation, the two men walk down into Sodom, and the writer, Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us what the Lord is thinking inside his head. Look at verse 17. Then the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? It never says what he's about to do. Genesis chapter 19 just tells us what he did. 
But the Lord is thinking, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Now, you need to understand that on both our point one and two here, as we break down the story, that God is not kind of caught by surprise here, and God is not uninformed. God isn't standing up saying, oh man, I don't know, if I can't make up my mind. Ah, maybe I should tell Abraham, maybe I shouldn't tell Abraham. Ah, I love Abraham, I don't know if I should do this or not. That's not what's happening here. The Lord always knows what he's going to do. The Lord always knows the end from the beginning. In his omniscience, he knows all things at all times. In fact, have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about what God sees and knows every second, every minute, every hour of every day all around the world in his omniscience? He sees people gasping their last breath in starvation. He sees the rape taking place. He sees the abuse. He sees the backhands. He sees the stealing. He sees the knife. He sees the murder. He sees the horrible, wretched behavior all at one time. What we have here now is we have some anthropomorphic expressions. Anthropomorphic. It comes just the word anthropology is the word we know so well, right? Men, people, the study of humans. Anthropomorphic. The idea is that for us, and the writer understands, for us to get the drift, to get the understanding of what's going on in the mind of God, he's going to give it in human terms. He's going to describe it like what we're thinking so that we can understand. God is not indecisive. God knows exactly what his intention will be. But he phrases it in such a term that, okay, should I tell Abraham? And then he goes on with that interesting part here. He says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations, and it kind of reiterates, restates once again the covenant promise. Verse 19 For I have chosen him that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. In a sense, it's sort of a stating of the conditional part of God's unconditional promise. Now that's some conflicting terms, isn't it? God made an unconditional promise, but in in the middle of it is a condition that he wants Abraham to walk in righteousness and justice and pass the truth on to every generation that ultimately God will be able to pour out his blessing. He's going to bless Abraham. He's promised. It's unconditional. It's unilateral. He will bless the world through Abraham. Ultimately, Jesus Christ is the probably is the greatest blessing that came from that. Not probably is. But if Abraham and his children and his descendants will walk in truth and live justly before the Lord, then God will bless them. And indeed he has. And we also have testimony of when Abraham's descendants have detoured, how God's wrath has been poured out on them as well. And I think the reason that God is saying, shall I tell Abraham this, isn't an indecisiveness, but it's more or less... Um, It's an unstated intention that he's going to do, but he is going now to explain to Abraham, and the reason it's stated this way is so that Abraham will understand why God is going to do what he'll do, he will do to these people, and Abraham will understand that God is just in the middle of it all, and Abraham will tell his children how God is and what God does. And so he wants Abraham to understand his position. The second part of the story that we see is we see in verse 20, God's personal inspection. 
He gives his intention to Abraham, and they're both standing there. He never says what he's going to do, but it's apparent from the story that Abraham knows what God's going to do because God, excuse me, Abraham begins to barter with God on how many people who are righteous would it take for you to hold back your wrath and not destroy these people. I don't know how that wordless exchange took place, but as they stood there and as they looked down on the plain, it evidently was so real, the wickedness of those cities, as though you drive through a city, an inner city somewhere, and you know as you go by a certain block, that whole block is wicked. We don't drive down that street if we can avoid it. And everybody in the car as they drive by, don't, nobody says it, but everybody thinks that's the wicked street. You know, that's the bad part of town. And as Abraham and God are standing there, it's a known thought without words being exchanged that this place is horrible and they're going to get judged. And God goes on in another anthropomorphic expression and says, verse 20, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Now, once again, you want to say to yourself, what's up with God? Does he know or does he not know? Well, he absolutely knows. We know that from many other passages of Scripture. He knows every thought that every wicked guy ever thought in that city. He knows every hair on their head. He knows every breath that they've ever taken. He knows every spoonful of cereal they've ever eaten. He knows how many teeth are in their head. He knows it and he knew it before it ever happened. God lives in a constant right now. And he knows everything and nothing in all creation is hidden from his sight. We know that clearly from scripture. What's he saying? He is simply assuring Abraham that he is a just God. And you notice that when Abraham makes his intercession, he appeals to the justice of God. Did you see that? He said, I know that you, he said, will not... Will not the judge of the earth do right? Verse 25, the end of verse 25. Abraham, when he makes his intercession, is going to appeal to the justice of God with a confidence knowing that God can only do the right thing. God can't, God isn't going to walk away from Sodom and Gomorrah here in a few days, a few hours, and say, oh man, I burned the wrong city. Oh, I didn't know there was a hundred righteous people in that city. What he is assuring Abraham is that I know exactly what's going on there. And in fact, it's as though I can go down there and examine the forensic evidence of their sinfulness. I will walk through every alley. I will sit in the shadows and I will observe the wickedness. I will peep through the windows. I know exactly what's going on there. And it's as though sin of people is like a smell and it comes up before the Lord. And it's like the Lord sitting on his throne and all of a sudden... Whew, got a bad one going on down there in that valley. Let me go down and see if it's as bad as it smells. This is all for Abraham's sake, not for God's sake. It is for our sake. God didn't need more information. God is assuring Abraham that he has and will continue to be just to the very end. You see, God is a patient and a loving God, my friend. Listen. But there are limits on God's patience when it comes to dealing with sin. He is a holy God 
He is a just God, and there comes a time where he has to deal with it. We don't know the measurement that he always uses. It's like back in Genesis chapter 15, when he promised the land to Abraham, he said, you're going to take over this land, but the sin of the Amorites has not filled up yet. And we know from the historical record that they got 400 more years before Joshua puts them to the edge of the sword. By the way, have you ever noticed how upset people get when we deal with the justice of God? Have you ever noticed how people just can't stand a God who wipes people off the face of the earth? That's a little bit, I mean, we talk pretty lightly about it. It's pretty dramatic what's going to happen here. It's just mind-boggling. It's incredible. It's horrendous. It's, It's really overwhelming. In our familiarity with it, we're not shocked by it. But people just really don't like it when God says, okay, that's it. The wages of your sin is now death, and here comes. I'm going to scour you off the face of the earth. You don't understand, Pastor Van. That might be your God, but that is not my God. I will not worship. My God is a God of love. Well, I'll tell you, my God's a God of love too. But my God is a multidimensional God, and my God, I get my facts from him from his book. And he said, the wages of sin is death. You know, these people have had time, haven't they? And we don't know when his time frame is going to run out. But he's assuring Abraham that I know what I'm talking about and I will go down and see firsthand if what I've smelled in the stink of their sinfulness, if their behavior matches it. Well, and indeed it does. We'll talk more about that next week. There were many issues that were going on there. We have God's intention. Now we have God's personal inspection. This begins now in trips, Abraham's multiple questions. Six times, as I've already emphasized, Abraham enters in to intercede for the city. He starts with 50. Hey God, if there's 50 righteous people, God says, yeah, if there's 50 righteous people, I will spare the city. It's interesting, isn't it? And then he says, well, 45 people, kind of like at an auction, 50, 45, only we're going backwards. Lord, for five people, would you wipe them off the face of the earth? No, Abraham, if you find 45 righteous people, I will spare this city. Abraham gets a little more bold. He acknowledges in his humility. And by the way, notice that he is a pattern of an intercessor for us a mediator here between the the wicked city and God, and he's begging. Abraham has a little bit of a history here, doesn't he? Do you remember when he rounded up his 318 men servants who who could carry a sword, mounted up on their mounts and headed out into the night when Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah were all swept away by those wicked kings from the north, that alliance of uh, four kings, I think it was? He he goes up over 100 miles away, hits them in in the wee hours of the morning, recaptures all of them, releases them, brings them back. And that's that time when uh, the king of Sodom Sodom tries to make a deal with him and Melchizedek was there. We had that part of the story. He knew these people. He had gone up and released them. He had loaded up all their stuff on wagons and brought it back down into the valley for them. Not only that, we remember that his nephew Lot, who he had raised up, was living down in the city. He had certainly had concerns 
He gets all the way down to 10 then. Lord, if for 10 people, would you spare the city? God says, for 10 people, I'll spare the city. I raised the question earlier. Why did he stop at 10? He's like, if I'd have just said three. He's got this false guilt the rest of his life. God wiped him out because I didn't say for three righteous people. There's a lesson there about intercession. I don't know how that works. How the all-knowing purpose and justice of God is impacted and intersected by the prayers of an intercessor and God in his sovereignty can adjust and not lose control of what he's going to do. And yet he responds to the intercessor. Why did Abraham stop at 10? Well, some Bible students think, and you can see this more clearly in a King James Bible than you can the NIV. It says there that he had sons and daughters. And it, in, in the NIV, it says that his daughters were unmarried and engaged. In the, in the King James, I think it says married daughters. So you have Lot, you have his wife. He had probably two sons, some Bible scholars think, and inferred in the text. He had two daughters who were married, and they had husbands, so that's now eight. And then we know from the story that he had two unmarried daughters, so that makes ten people. Some Bible students think that's why he said ten. Abraham thought he knew of ten righteous people in the city. And so he thought he was okay with ten. By the way, this is probably a good point to just stop and ask ourselves this question. What is a righteous person anyway? Who's a righteous person? How do you become a righteous person? Because point number four in our story is this. It's the city's greatest protection. We had God's apparent intention. His personal inspection of the city communicated to Abraham. I will be just and fair. Abraham's repeated questions. The city's greatest protection was what? It was that dwelling therein might be righteous people from which God would then pull back his hand of wrath. The city doesn't know it. The community doesn't know it. The state doesn't know it. It could be right now that the greatest gift ever given to the community of Charlestown in the greater Jefferson County area is Fellowship Bible Church. That God was going to zap it. Oh, there's 10 righteous people. Yeah, there they are. Yep, yep. No, I can't wipe them out. I'll just spare them. I don't know the mind of God, but obviously from the story, 10 righteous people had high impact on the preservation of the city, didn't it? And the potential. And by the way, we won't take time to turn there, but if you read Jeremiah, I think it's chapter 5, verse 1, you'll find that if God could find one righteous person in the city, he would have spared the city. That's interesting, isn't it? What is a righteous person? Well, let's do a little Bible study real quick, and let's just kind of clarify in our minds for just a couple minutes, what is a righteous person? This won't take long, but turn back to Genesis chapter 6, where we encountered in Noah's testimony that God considered him righteous. Somebody who is righteous is someone who does what is right in God's eyes, no matter the cost to them. And we remember that and recall, and actually it's kind of interesting to look at the parallels between God's destruction of Sodom and God's scouring of the entire surface of the earth with the flood. In Genesis 6, 
Remember the sin of all mankind had come up before God as though it were a stench. We see in verse 5 of chapter 6, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's an apt description of Sodom and Gomorrah. Furthermore, that's a pretty good description of any city USA, isn't it? It's unbelievable. Then you get down to verse 9, and you have... Noah was a righteous man. I believe the King James uses the word just. He was blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. There's the contrast. This is a righteous man. He cares about doing what is right in the eyes of Almighty God, while the rest of the world couldn't care less about what God thinks. In fact, they pretty much just reject God altogether. And they make up systems of thought way back then. And even today, we've, they make up frameworks of philosophical thought that totally deny the authority and invasion of God into their lives. For example, evolution. Okay? That's a no-brainer. Why did you come up with evolution? Because we can't stand the fact that there's a God who created me. Because if there's a God who created me, then I am accountable to Him. And I don't like being accountable to anybody. Because I'm the man. You know I'm the man. You see, there's an, there is an innate arrogance in the heart of sinful man. But in the midst of this wicked, perverse world, what do you have? You have, and Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was a just man and he walked uprightly and he cared about what God thought. Turn to the book of Proverbs real quick and notice there. Notice in Proverbs there's a, if, you've been, if you guys have been reading, I challenged you a couple months ago to, to read Proverbs every day. Get your pen in your hand next time you get. It's coming up this week, right? What's today? Eight? On Tuesday and Wednesday this week, when you read chapters 10 and 11, get your big pen out and circle every time it says righteous and wicked in chapters 10 and 11. And just by comparing the contrast between the righteous and the wicked, you're going to have a better understanding of what a righteous man is. Look what it says. Chapter 10, verse 3. We'll just pop through it real fast. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. Verse 6. Blessing. Proverbs 10, 6. Blessings crown the head of the righteous, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. 7. The memory of the righteous will be a blessing, but the name of the wicked will rot. 11. The mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life, but violence overwhelms the mouth of the wicked. 16. The wages of the righteous bring them life, but the income of the wicked brings them punishment. 20. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver, but the heart of the wicked is of little value. 21. The lips of the righteous nourish many, but fools die for lack of judgment. 24. What the wicked dreads will overtake him. What the righteous desire will be granted. 25. When the storm has swept by, the wicked are gone, but the righteous stand firm forever. 27. The fear of the Lord adds length to life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. 28. The prospect of the righteous is joy, but the hopes of the wicked comes to nothing. 29. The way of the Lord is a refuge for the righteous, but it is the ruin of those who do evil. 30. The righteous will never be uprooted. 31. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom. 32. The lips of the righteous know what is fitting, but the mouth of the wicked is only, only knows perversity. Look at 11.4. This sums it up, doesn't it? Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. 
but righteousness delivers from death. You ought to write Genesis 18, 16 next to that verse. The righteousness of the blameless, verse 5, makes a straight way for them, but the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. It goes on. You can do your own search. Look at verse 10. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Now over to Ephesians chapter 3 in the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, excuse me. Because, stop and think about it for a minute. So what do I do? Okay, read Proverbs. And I make a list of everything that a righteous person does. And then I just do this righteousness. But then we realize that left to ourselves, we don't do very good at living a righteous life. And we need the transforming power of Christ to change us. Because otherwise, I know myself. I'm going to go right back to my same old sinfulness. I'm going to determine today that I'm going to live for Jesus. And by tomorrow, I've already lost my temper. I'm cussing again. Or I'm doing this. I'm doing that. And off I go. And until I have a new heart. And until I'm renewed in my mind. Through the power of Christ. Who takes away my sin who gives me His righteousness, then I can live out His righteousness because then I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. It doesn't mean that I don't battle with my flesh. It doesn't mean that I don't trip and fall. But the righteous man, Proverbs says, though he falls seven times, rises up again. This righteousness, ultimately, look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. Look what it says. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. Gentiles is a word there just used for anybody who's a heathen, anybody who's outside of God. They are darkened in their understanding and they are separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. Kind of a broad statement about mankind in general without Christ. You, however, he says to the Ephesian church, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, what does that mean? In summary, Paul is talking about the basic doctrine of our salvation. He's talking about the fact that before you were dead in trespasses and sins, you had no righteousness of your own that you could muster up to, to, to impress God. Oh, it didn't mean you couldn't go over to your neighbors and, you know, help him pull his truck out of the ditch or something and be a nice guy. But then all kinds of other things go on and our heart is bent towards evil. The prophet Isaiah said that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. There's none righteous, no, not one. So what do we do? How do I become righteous if there is no righteousness in me? That's the essence of our salvation experience. That's what we talk about being saved here at Fellowship Bible Church. 
It's recognizing that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to die on the cross. Not that one, but it's representative of it. And he died on the cross for our sin so that we could recognize that in my sinful state, I had no righteousness to muster to show God. Couldn't whip out and say, yeah, but I got lots. Look at what I have. God, aren't you impressed? No, I'm not impressed. You're a dirty, rotten sinner. And left to yourself, you'll self-destruct. But I love you and Jesus took your place. There has to be a penalty for sin. And Jesus stepped in and took our place. And when we come to the cross, by his grace, we receive his free gift of salvation. And another word for free gift of salvation is take the righteousness that belongs to Christ. And I, and I become clothed in his righteousness, Paul said. And I put it on as though it were a jacket. And now you can't see the old me anymore. When God looks at me, he sees He sees the righteousness of Christ. You see? The old is gone and now there's new. I didn't do it. I just took what God gave me through Christ. And now I am a new creation in Christ. Now I have been transformed in my thinking. And now the word of God means something to me. I'm now living for the purpose of the cause of God. I now want to live a just life. I want to walk in righteousness. It bothers me when, I, when the integrity of the wicked around me crumbles. And I now become light. I now become a child of God. I'm saved. I'm born again. I have newness of life. That's amazing, isn't it? And that is a righteous person who has confessed their sinfulness before God and they have received in a spiritual transaction and understanding between you and God that you are counting on what God did by putting Jesus on the cross in your place and by faith you believe it and you've taken his righteousness and you're clothed in it now. It's credited to your account. That's a righteous person. Praise God. Praise God. The problem is this. When all the righteous people of the community fall in love with the wickedness around them. Now we have a problem, don't we? Well, let's just wrap up this passage back in Genesis 18. There's just four very brief, very practical lessons that we can take home with us. We've seen God's intention. Next week, we're going to see what happens. He promises Abraham a personal inspection so that there's no injustice. Abraham six times has repeated his question to him. We see that the greatest protection this city had was the righteous people. We know that we can be righteous in Christ and then live in obedience and live a righteous life. We know that there's a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. Okay, let's just step back now. And before we go home, let's just say, okay, what do we take with us on this chapter? Number one, they're all do nots, by the way. Sometimes we need do nots, don't we? Number one, I think when we read this passage and we understand what's going to happen in chapter 19, we need to say to ourselves, number one, do not trivialize the wrath of a righteous, holy God. Whether you like it or not, whether you accept it or not, it's a very real thing that the wages of sin is death and that God, in his justice, condemns sinners. And God is getting ready to wipe some cities right off the plain. We're going to deal with the topic, maybe not next week, but somewhere in the next week or two, because we have to deal with it. Has God changed? 
Has God changed? I think that's a really important question for us to ask here from the pulpit in these passages. If he wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah, how come he's not wiping out parts of Chicago or New York or Philadelphia or Charlestown or Shenandoah Junction? What's going on with God? And is he still that kind of a God of justice and wrath? But one of the things I think we have to take away from this is we must not trivialize God's just wrath. In fact, we need to fear that, don't we? We need to tremble before him. Number two, I think when I read this passage and I recognize especially what Lot has done and then the spirit of the day that has permeated the church, I think number two is we must not, do not rationalize the importance of identifying with wicked people. Do not rationalize to yourself the importance of identifying with wicked people. What do I mean by that? I mean that in our holiness and in our call to be a separated people, the, the, the popular mode of the day is that I have got to fit in with the world if I'm going to reach the world. The mode is, is that I have got to, you know, I can't be seen as somebody who's not cool. I can't be seen as somebody who's not with the times, with the world, in the sense of I'm comfortable with all of the behaviors and activities of so much of the world that is condemned in Scripture. We'll talk a little more about this. We have gotten, as the pendulum of grace has swung so far, to where everything is tolerable. And it's under the guise of, well, if I'm going to reach the world, I've got to become the world. Well, I don't agree with that. I think the way that we reach the world is by walking into the cabin and all of a sudden everybody in the bunkhouse says, "Uh uh-oh, there's light in here. Uh Uh-oh, I don't feel comfortable all of a sudden and I'm not, they don't even know why they don't feel comfortable. You don't go sit down on the bunk and have a good laugh with them and enjoy it too. So now let me tell you about Jesus. You don't do that. There has to be a contrast. Otherwise, what? The salt has lost its savor and it's worthless and it's only good to be thrown down on the road and trampled underfoot. And we end up with a church that's bigger than it's ever been and less impacting than it's ever been. Do not trivialize the wrath of God. Do not rationalize the importance of connecting with the wicked. And now you're going to say, well, how am I supposed to reach them? Well, just do it. Um, We'll talk about that another time. Obviously, there's a balance there, isn't there? There's a, a way of having unsaved friends. Do not, number three, marginalize the importance of being connected to a group or a band of righteous, godly people. Did you get that out of this passage? Do not marginalize the importance of being connected with a group of righteous people. Think about it. I mean, I said it kind of in jest earlier, but it's kind of true, isn't it? The greatest thing that ever happened in Jefferson County is for Christians to live here who are righteous. You don't know what God's going to do and when he's going to do it and how he's going to do it. But it's obvious from the story, isn't it, that righteousness preserves a people. So there needs to be a band of at least, say, 10 righteous people. That's a pretty good number. I call this the local church. A group of people who've identified themselves to say, I will live according to God's word, and I'm not ashamed to say it. 
And the people who will enter into the waters of baptism and say, my life has been transformed by Jesus Christ. I've been buried in Christ in baptism. I've been raised to walk in newness of life. And I am no longer ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Call me a Jesus freak if you want. That's what I'm all about. Number four, do not minimize the importance of interceding for the unrighteous. All that being said, don't we need to have a broken heart for the unrighteous? I know that sometimes it's difficult to... And and I don't know where the tipping point is. When you see somebody take a gun and go in and kill a pregnant lady and a newlywed couple and shoot up an office complex where guns are not to be fired and innocent people are lying down in blood all over the floor and some crazy wacko guy's there. That's horrible, despicable, and damnable. But it's not my job to damn them. It's God's job. The only time it's my job is if they're at the bottom of my stairs at 2 o'clock in the morning and they're coming into my house after my family. Well, then give them both barrels. Don't go down the street and give them both barrels. I mean, obviously, there's this whole balance of, of a Christian loving the unlovely. But didn't Abraham provide for us in this story the model of someone who interceded for the city. God, would you spare this city? Who are you praying for? Who are you interceding on behalf of? Humbly, in Abraham's word, as dust and ashes, Lord, I don't even deserve to talk to you, but in all humility I come before you and I ask, would you please preserve these people? I think we need to be interceding for lost people, don't we? And I know that you do, and God's Word communicates to us clearly who we are to pray for regularly. Well, some things to think about. It's a hard message in some ways. There are some harsh realities that we're going to see now as God carries out His justice. Can I challenge you to examine your heart today? And maybe one thing we need to ask ourselves is, am I a preserving agent to anybody anywhere? in this culture, in this community at this time. You know, Jonathan and I have a practice of closing the day up in his bedroom. He's in bed covered up and ready to turn on his odyssey because he can't go to sleep without his odyssey. And we pray together almost without fail every night. And often I will pray as we close out the day, Lord, Would you be with our policemen tonight in the night who are up watching over our community? I want Jonathan to know that we live in a real world and I want him to appreciate and respect our law officers and I really appreciate these guys who are up at 2 o'clock in the morning so I can sleep in bed. But I was thinking too, there's no police force in the world that can protect a city indefinitely. There's no military that's strong enough. The greatest thing we can do to bring the blessing and the protection of God upon our homes and upon our communities is to be a righteous people. That ultimately God, though the horse is prepared for battle, safety comes from the Lord. Are you a righteous person? Let's bow in prayer. Father, we recognize this morning that without you, we are nothing. We know that um, you have the great ability to take even the 
the coarsest of sinners and transform them into beautiful creations in Christ. Lord, guide our thoughts as we deal with these passages of Scripture about your justice, about your wrath, also about what it means to be a righteous man or woman, boy or girl. Father, help us to intercede on behalf of the wicked around us. More than that, help us to live through a righteous life to bear out the obvious fruit of righteousness that a life like that brings. Lord, we are a nation that as a whole is trending far from you. And we don't know when the limits of your patience will end. Help us to be faithful. Help us to live for you no matter the cost to us personally. May we see the gospel changing lives around us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.